Good morning and greetings to each of you in Jesus' name this morning. Before we get into the message, <clears throat> I thought maybe I'd mention two things. One of them is, sorry to you superintendents for dropping the ball about that organization of classes and stuff. I just, just completely slipped my mind that I needed to be communicating with you on that. So I'm sorry about that. And the other thing is, I forgot to bring announcement sheets this morning. So sorry about that too to everybody. That just went right over my head as well. So anyway, that happens to me sometimes. Things go over my head. For uh, now thinking about the message for a text this morning, you can turn to John chapter 17. The title of the message this morning is Separated Unto God. This is a subject that I have considered quite often. Um, not that I particularly feel like I have a complete grasp on it, but it's something that's been important to me and I think is very important to us as the church. And a, pro a proper understanding of it is, I believe, extremely important to the family of God. But four men met at a four-way stop. One man was a Baptist, one was a Lutheran, one was a Catholic, and one was a Mennonite. All of these men made a claim to Jesus Christ. But how they lived that out was somewhat different in its expression in the world. Who was separated from God? All of them, some of them, but not others. Were some more separated than others? I bring that up to ask this question, how do you define what it means to be separated unto God? The subject of separation, I think, has, at least in my experience, has often been presented kind of in a negative light kind of this list of things that we shouldn't do. Um, it's been, when we start talking about separation, you bring up the topic of separation. People often talk about nonconformity in our circles. Or not conforming to the practices of the world around us. But it seems to me in thinking about this, this thing of separation that nonconformity is just a little piece of what separation means in the Scriptures. And I'll talk about that a little bit more later. But I've heard it said before that nonconformity and non-resistance are the pillars of the conservative Mennonite church. And I'd like to propose to you two other pillars this morning of Christian faith. Truth and love. And I noticed in Ben's opening uh, this morning for Sunday school lesson, those came out. That we love one another in deed and in truth. And it's out of those two pillars that the doctrines of the church come. And I was thinking about it later. I thought maybe that's not a good illustration. Maybe I ought to, maybe I ought to say that, that truth and love are the, the mixed ingredients that bind the church together. 
kind of like the, the concrete mix that makes the foundation of the building, that bonds each group together. But out of these two pillars come the doctrines of the church. And I've looked at truth some in the last two messages. The first one was about the nature of truth, and then the last message was about our relationship with the truth. And today's message is about the effect of truth in the world. You see, truth brings division. I always liked in school my favorite type of questions on a test were true and false questions because I was guaranteed a 50% chance of getting them right. If it's not true, it's false. If it's not false, it's true. And so when truth comes into an equation, it automatically brings a division with what is false. And Jesus says in that sense, Jesus said, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. Because by bringing truth to the world, He was bringing division into what was false, from what was false. And so this idea of separation comes out of the doctrine or the, the, the source of truth. It's founded in truth. John 17, verses 15 through 17. And I'm going to read these out of the New King James. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, when I think about the word sanctify, I often thought about something that had to do with cleansing. And that is part of the meaning of, of, sanctif uh, of being sanctified. But did you know that, that Jesus said that He was sanctified? He said, the Father sanctified me and sent me into the world. Jesus didn't have any sin. So it wasn't a sense of which He was being cleansed from sin. It was a sense from which, in which He was set apart for a specific purpose. And sanctification carries that sense. It, it's, it does have to do with cleansing, but it also has to do with being set apart, separated for a specific purpose. And so, in verse 16, it says here, the disciple of Jesus is separate from the world as Jesus is separate. So he's saying that that's a state of being. As Jesus is sanctified and sent into the world, the disciple of Jesus Christ is set apart and sent into the world. A purpose. As I am not of the world. And then in verse 17, he's saying that they will be, that they will be sanctified by truth. That truth will be the thing that will set them apart. And so truth is going to be an active force in the life of the believer that will produce separation or set them apart. In verse 15, 
it shows us that that separation is not a physical separation from the physical world or the people of the world. It says, I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but his prayer of separation is that they would be kept from the evil one. So separation is directly linked to being a follower of Jesus. And you can deny this issue of separation. You can try to get around it. But Jesus said, my disciples are not of this world. And so there is a guarantee that if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're going to be separate from the world. And if you want the benefits of being a follower of Jesus, you must also embrace separation. But this morning, I don't want to cast separation in a negative light. I want to cast separation in a positive light this morning because I believe it has such a, a positive implication if we, if we follow the thought of separation all the way through the Scripture. Because Christian separation is not something that is aimless. It's something that has a purpose. And it's become dead when it has been pointless. The aim is that we be separated unto God. So let's start at the beginning. Where did separation begin? You can turn your Bibles if you want to to Genesis chapter 2. Acts is Genesis chapter 3. Sorry. Yeah. So in Genesis chapter 2, I'm not going to read anything there. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a background there. In Genesis chapter 2, God created humanity and He said it was very good. And the interaction between God and man was open and it was free. And there was no separation between God and man. Adam and Eve were living in the Garden of Eden. And I don't know what you think about when you think about the Garden of Eden, but I think about a place of extreme beauty and that they were without a care. They were without a burden. They were without a pain. They were connected with God. They were at peace with themselves. They were in love with each other. There was joy abounding in their lives. So I ask you this question, do you believe that Adam and Eve were fulfilled in the garden? Do you think that their lives were fulfilled? Were they alive? Very much so. God breathed into them the breath of life. Do you believe that they were as alive and fulfilled as they could possibly be? The answer to that is yes. It should be yes. That's what they were. 
They were as alive and fulfilled as they could be. They were experiencing fulfillment through what God had designed. But at some point, there was a cosmic spiritual divide that came into existence. And it was between God, the author of life, the author of truth, and Satan, the father of lies. And life was on God's side, and death was on Satan's side. So in Genesis 3, Satan came into Eden. And he had a scheme. And his scheme was to take man from God's side over to his side. So first of all, he cast doubt on the goodness of God, of what God had designed. And he promised Eve something that would be more fulfilling. Let's look at his promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And so he's saying, look beyond Eden. There's so much more out there for you to get a hold of. You're going to be like gods. You're going to have something that's better than what God has given you. Satan was promising a fuller life, but it was a lie. They already had life, so all he could do was try to convince them that there was something more there was more than what God had given them, more than what God could offer to them or had offered to them. Beyond the fruit, there was something better. It's what He said. And so then what did Eve do? When she saw that the tree was good for food, then she had a pursuit. She said, okay, I'm going to pursue this fruit, this opportunity. It was the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life that appealed to Eve. Why did Adam and Eve eat the fruit? It was they ate the fruit in pursuit of fulfillment that was outside of God's design. So I propose to you this morning that life and sin are both inseparable from the issue of fulfillment. And I'm going to, I'd like to explain that just a little bit. Every person in this room wants to be fulfilled because where life is, there is desire for fulfillment, for completion. So life, all who are alive will seek fulfillment. Sin is the pursuit of fulfillment from some source other than God. And so the reason why we sin is because we are seeking to be fulfilled outside of God's design. 
Let's follow a little bit what happened after the fall. After the fall, you see, man, God said, the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. And man did die spiritually. And so he was left with this physical body that was dead within. And in that dead state, the only thing that he was left with by which to pursue the world was his flesh. And so this is what it says in Genesis 6. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years old. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so you have these beings that are, instead of being spirit-directed like they were before the fall, they're flesh-directed. And their goal is simply to please and sustain and pleasure that flesh. And within just a few generations here by, Gen by Genesis 6, the thoughts of man's heart were only evil continually because he was seeking that fulfillment outside of God. I'd like for us to think about in Galatians 5, what it says about the deeds of the flesh. If you think about humanity in Adam's day pursuing that, you can see why the thoughts of his heart became only evil continually. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I've also told you in the past in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And so here were these people who were just living out to these things in pursuit of the pleasure of their flesh, the fulfillment of their flesh. And in the corruption just compounded as time went on. You see, life for Adam and Eve had been God-centered because life that they had was from God. And that was the only life they knew. And they had not broken that connection with God. And after the fall, man became self-centered. And man's actions were centered around preserving and pleasing himself. His mortal body. And it says this in Ephesians 2, referring to the Christian before he was converted. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And so it was our very nature before we became Christians to pursue fulfillment outside of God's design. And sin took humanity from the very things that He wanted, He most desired. Life, fulfillment, connection with God. And it took Him into death and emptiness and futility and separation from God. So separation began not 
in being separated from the world unto God, it began in being separated from God to the world. That was the beginning of separation. Because we were designed, we were made to bear the image of God and be in communion with Him. That's how God designed us initially. And so separation began when we separated ourselves from Him. We chose to go away from Him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, and the world passeth away, that's death, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. That's life. The world, definition of the world, the system that is driven by man's pursuit of fulfillment outside of God. So the whole, when the Bible talks about the world in this sense, it's talking about that system that is being driven as a result of man's desire for fulfillment. So, if that's what the world is, and that's where we are, if we would come back to God, we must now be separated from the world unto God. Because there's this cosmic divide. And we have to come back across the divide to be with God. Salvation is a journey back to Eden. Finding fulfillment in God's design. That's where Adam and Eve were. And that's what salvation is meant to do. Salvation is not to get you to heaven only. Salvation is to bring heaven to you. And that was Jesus' focus in the Gospels. He said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. Salvation is finding life as it was meant to be lived. I noticed in Acts 2, verse 39, our Sunday school lesson, it said that the promise was to all who would call upon Him. I can't quote that verse. Better look it up. Acts 2.39 For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. What was that promise? That promise was a promise of restoration. It's a promise of restoration of life for us. For mankind. And we will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's what the promise was. Promise of life. And I believe understanding that place, our place in that cosmic divide is critical to our understanding of these three things. New Testament theology, our interaction with the kingdoms of this world, and the under, and, and understanding of the church pur church's purpose in the world. Separation is critical to understanding New Testament theology our relationship with the government, and the purpose of the church. All three of those. And I'd like to look at all three of those, but only one of them this morning. I want to, I want to look at the second two in another message. But I'd like to think a little bit about New Testament theology in relation to separation. First of all, I'd like to break down 
the word theology just a little bit. The word theology comes from three root words. Uh, the first one is the or theo, which is a Greek beginning or a Greek word for God. So it means basically God is the first part. And then the second part, ology, it comes from two base words. O means of. And then um, the L-O-G-Y means to study science or theory. And so theology is the study of God. Okay? So your theology and my theology is what your God thinks or my God thinks. So what I have concluded about who God is is my theology. It doesn't mean that it's right theology. It just means that it's my theology. Well, Christians have concluded that the Bible is the, word of, is the truth. That it's the Word of God. And so the God of the Bible is who they believe the Theo is talking about. It's talking about the God of the Bible. And then our study of the Bible, through our study of the Bible, we come to a knowledge of who we believe that person, what we believe that person is like. So if we're going to come out right on what God said in this book, we need to find out what God meant when He wrote, had these words written down. So I'll give you an example. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. The reason I'm going to this passage Verse 13 we're going to be looking at. The reason I'm going to this passage is because I had a three-hour discussion with a couple this week. And our discussion boiled down to a three words in this verse. And we just could not come together on our theology. It says in verse 13 of Romans chapter 8, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. So, our point of contention was, ye shall die. Is that talking about physical death? Or is that talking about spiritual death? For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. And I told them, I said, it doesn't matter what I think about the answer to that question. What matters is what God thinks. And I better be finding out what He thinks. Because that's right theology. And if I don't come out with right theology, then I'm going to come out wrong about who God is. 
And so if the truth is going to truly sanctify me and set me apart for a purpose, then I'm going to have to understand the truth. And whose truth is it, Jesus said? He said, it's your truth speaking to God. So we're to be sanctified by God's truth. We're going to be set apart. And so I, I believe that this issue of separation permeates every aspect of the Scriptures. And when, what does God see when He looks at the world? Well, what He sees is this cosmic divide that happened at Eden. And His desire to restore that. And so as we read His Word, we too need to see the cosmic divide and His desire to restore that. We also need to know where we are in that cosmic divide. So as a Christian, how often do you think about the fact that you are separate from the world? Jesus said that His followers would be separate from the world. How often do you think about that? I'm sure you've heard of the renowned physicist, physicist Albert Einstein. Well, He was once traveling on a train from Princeton and the conductor came down the aisle and he was punching the tickets. And he came to Einstein and Einstein reached in his front pocket and there was no ticket. So he went to his pants pockets and there was no ticket. And he checked the seat beside him and there was no ticket. And the conductor said, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. I know that you probably bought a ticket. I'm sure that you did. Don't worry about it. We'll just go on. And Einstein nodded appreciatively and the conductor went on down the aisle punching tickets and he got to the, to the back of the car and he looked back up through and he saw Einstein down on his hands and knees looking underneath his seat for this ticket. And he rushed back up the aisle and he said, uh, don't worry about the ticket. We know who you are. And Einstein looked up at him and he said, I also know who I am. The problem is I don't know where I'm going. And you see, we not only need to know where we are, but we also need to know where we're going. And so those aspects of our place in this cosmic divide is so important. So as a Christian, who am I? Which, place of the, which, which side of the cosmic divide do I fall on? Am I halfway in between? Do I have a foot on each side? Where am I going? Do you know where you're going? You know, there's a story in the Old Testament that we're really familiar with. It's a story about a man named Goliath and a young man named David. And before Goliath was challenging the army of Israel, before David showed up, the, as soon as he would come to the front lines and shout his challenge, the men of Israel would turn pale and run in the other direction. And David came along 
And he's this young man of maybe 17, and he says, you know, I'll go fight this guy. What was the difference between David and the rest of the men in the army? In the, in the army of Israel? Well, we can see it in David's response in 1 Samuel 17.45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You see, David knew which side he was on. And he knew where he was going. And I say it's equally important for us as believers to know the side we're on. And so I ask you this question, are you experiencing victory in your life like David did? What I'm trying to get at with this is that separation is so much deeper than just things that we do. It really comes down to who we are, who we believe ourselves to be, and what God's Word shows us that we are. It has to do with a framework of thinking has to do with a mindset. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. So is this saying that if I'm a true believer that, and I want to go from here to Costco, that I'm going to close my eyes, walk out the door, and say God's going to get me there? You would say that's ridiculous. Of course not. Then what is it saying? Well, it's talking about a mindset. It's a different way of thinking. Let's read the context of that verse. We walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we are... For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up of life by life. Now He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also hath, has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we, always, so we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in the body according to what He has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So there's a lot of wording in those verses. I'd like to just sum it up with some quick thoughts about this passage. In verse 1 through 3, it's saying that we don't consider our earthly life to be the ultimate goal. There's something else that is beyond this tent that we're living in. 
this physical body. In fact, verse 4, we look forward to the time when we'll return to Eden. We'll be complete. The mortal aspects of us will be swallowed up by life. And we'll have the, the completion of our salvation will happen when our bodies are transformed. And then verse 5, but while we are living here, a transformation is already happening through God's Spirit, which is a guarantee of its completion. So while that while the Spirit of God is there in your life, that is a guarantee that God is taking you to that ultimate salvation. And it's in the presence of the Spirit in our lives. I know I've said this before. It's in the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we have the assurance of salvation. Then verses 6-8, through eight, and because of that guarantee, we are confident we have a confidence that directs the way we live according to spiritual life, not physical life. For we walk by faith, not by sight. In verses 9-11, through 11, And because of this mindset, this mind that's changed by having God's Spirit, we make it our goal to please God and to bring others from the world unto God. across the cosmic divide. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So separation is actually a, a force, a catalyst to evangelism. Because if you truly believe in that cosmic divide, then there's lost souls that need to come across. See, the heroes of faith lived with this mindset. In Hebrews 11, verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind, I want you to catch that, called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them." And so those men lived with a mindset that I'm, I'm living by faith. I have this, this, this earthly life is, is, just a, is just a tent, kind of like what we were reading there in uh, 2 Corinthians. It says of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they dwelled in tents. And because of that, God is not ashamed to be called their God and He has prepared for them a city. And that example of, sep of a separate mindset is the context for chapter 12 where it says to us, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily ensnare us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. So I want us to catch how Jesus lived. It says He endured the cross, despising the shame. You see how separate that is from a pleasure-seeking lifestyle? Why did He do it? For the joy that was set before Him. And it's telling us that we should fix our eyes on Jesus. A different way of thinking. A different way of living. I'd like to finish up in Romans chapter 12. 
You'll know this passage. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'd like to break this verse down in three sections. The first section, and do not be conformed to this world. And this is where we get the term nonconformity. This is kind of the same thought as Hebrews chapter 12 where it says, lay aside every weight in the sin which does so easily beset us. Let's put these things aside. Let's get rid of the things that are hindering us. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't allow those things to drag you down. But, if you're going to be successful in any venture, you can never be focused on what you should not do. You have to be focused on what you should do. And the focus of this passage is not in this aspect of the verse. I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm just saying that that's not the, the focus of this passage. If you're, going to be accept, if you're going to be successful, you have to be focused on where you should go, where you should be, and how you're going to get there. And then the other things have to fall by the wayside because you, you, can't, you don't have the capacity to, to have everything, have your cake and eat it too, so to speak. So the focus of this passage is on the last part of the verse. That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, that's our purpose. And that needs to be our focus. So how are we going to get there? Well, what is the will of God? So now you're back to trying to figure out what the mind of God is. Or trying to understand Him. Maybe I made that sound too difficult. God has given us His Spirit. It doesn't need to be difficult. God has offered us His Spirit. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. In Eden, I see the perfect will of God happening before the fall. And it was very good. And I see this call, this purpose for us, this directive here, as being very good. It's going to take us to a very good place. If we can live out that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So how do we get there? How do we find a way to get to that place? Second part of the verse. Be ye transformed and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a change of mind that has to happen. And that needs to be our focus as well. Because that is what's going to take us day by day to that, to that point. A mindset that is set apart and transforms our living according to God's truth. And I believe that if that is truly our pursuit, we're going to be nonconformed people. Because so I think nonconformity is important. 
But we have to understand it in the proper focus because I, I believe that if, if, if nonconformity gets too much focus, we'll actually lose the greater value of the renewal of our mind. And the place that that is taking us. And we'll become a shell that has no vital life. But we must understand that we will be separate. And both aspects of separation are involved. It's leaving the world and being joined to God. But the driver is our renewed mind. Sanctify them by Your truth. Your Word is truth.